my sister marissa that is so unnecessarily confusing i loved that whole thing we've got <laughs> i mean your dancing abilities are pretty great you get down i think it's my smart brainness that would probably i was really gonna me over the top i was gonna get there i was gonna get there okay we we're gonna go into order <laughs> you've got pretty good dancing ability i would say i've seen you get down and then you've got coolness you're up there mm-hmm. dopeness yep. Yeah, I'm the dopest mom on the playground. Freshness. I do talk back to a lot of people. You're very fresh. And then, above everything else, you are very smart-brained. Very smart-brained. I would say I'm a 13, but apparently I'm an 8. Because it goes up and then back down. So Yeah, like a tent. Yeah. So, listeners, welcome to this week's episode of The Good Play, which is a podcast about NBC's The Good Place This week, we are recapping chapter 18, which is entitled Existential Crisis. So our episode structure today, uh, we're going to do a recap of the episode. And then I was thinking, uh, not to give too much away, but uh, maybe we need to do Shipper Wars again? Yeah, hopefully not as at the length that we did it last time. (laughs) I've got some thoughts. short segment Uh, on Shipper Wars. Then we've got article roundup, and we've got a little spoiler space. I found a little, you know, some things that might be considered spoilery. Um, So, uh, what did you think of this episode before we get into the recap? I was a little underwhelmed by it. Mm. Um, I think the ideas that they explored were good. I think the problem for me was more um, the structure that is sort of forced on these episodes by the demands of the network where they have uh, like a very strict um, like length of segments, you know, where they're making room for commercials. Um, I thought this was a concept that could have been explored more fruitfully in a, in a longer format. Like if this were a streaming show, they could have made this maybe the full half hour or 40 minutes or something. But at, you know, 21 minutes with the act breaks the way they are, it wasn't completely successful for me. Not to say that it wasn't totally enjoyable. It was totally enjoyable. Um, And a lot of the jokes really landed. But um, the the A plot with Michael's existential crisis, giving the name of the episode, um, I did not love the pacing of that. What did you think? I actually liked it because... Well, not specifically the pacing, but I liked the episode because I thought it gave us more of an insight into Eleanor. And I actually thought that it sort of goes back to what we were talking about in our first episode of this podcast, which is, has Eleanor sort of irrevocably changed having gone through these good person lessons and having gone through this experience in what we now know as the bad place. And I think that's kind of true because she was very sweet with Michael and was taking care of him. And really that heart to heart towards the end, I know that we're kind of getting ahead of the recap here, but I really felt like 
you know, that showed a different side of her. I think if we, if this had been season one, Eleanor, who was new to the whole thing, you know, if anybody needed taken care of, she probably just would have left them alone and told them to suck it up like her mom what used to do to her. So I, I sort of liked that it showed that more mature side of her. But I do kind of think that it was a little uneven. And also, I think it's just hard to live up to the first few episodes of the season, which were so crazy and so inventive. Yeah, that now that- they really pulled out all the stops for those first two episodes. And now that we've settled into more of a narrative and we know, you know, it's a little bit of a slower pace, it almost feels like a little bit of a... I don't want to say a letdown because that's not what I mean, but it it feels like you're expecting a twist in every single episode or you're expecting like someone to pop out and say like, haha, I, I figured you out when in reality, like they're, they're going to be in this iteration for a while, it seems like, and they've got to learn to live with that. So I think it's partially the, the pacing of the episode, but also partially like our own expectations and how they've been set up. It's almost like when you start dating someone and it's like butterflies all the time and then, you know, you settle into more of a groove. <laughs> it's not worse. It's just different. It's not as exciting as it is right. in the initial. Yeah. The, right. the, the first two weeks worth of episodes were like so madcap that the normal pace of this and last week's episodes were um, a little disorienting almost. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I think it's... Yeah, there are, I mean, there are plenty of twists, as we'll get to, you know, at the end of this episode, there was a little bit of a twist. (laughs) Um, So there are plenty of things that are still happening that are interesting, but but you're right, it does feel like a little bit of a you know, a slowdown from what we've seen in the in the first few episodes. But I think in a weird way, that's a testament to the writers setting our expectations so high at the beginning that now like a very good episode is like, well, that was all right. Like, let's go with that. Yeah. It's still better than any other sitcom on network TV. I yeah. mean, I don't want to, I don't want to bag on Superstore, but that's, so that's the, the show that immediately precedes um, the good place in the, in the Thursday night lineup. Yeah. And like, I don't, I love America Ferrara and I saw her at a DACA rally. Great. <laughs> I did. That's my um, one connection to her. I like Mark McKinney a lot, but, you know, I have to sit through the last five, ten minutes of that show every week while I'm, like, gearing up to live tweet The Good Place. And, like, it's not even in the same universe as The Good Place. You know, like, I'm sure it's a fine sitcom for people who like sitcoms, but, like, The the Good Place is head and shoulders quality above pretty much everything else. So when we talk about an episode being a little bit underwhelming, it's still head and shoulders above anything else. Yeah. It's just, you know, an inch shorter, still head and shoulders above everything else. Right. Yeah. So shall we get into this uh, episode recap? Yes, I will. Don't interrupt me so much this time. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep a lid on it <laughs> until the end. Our recap should not be longer than the episode itself, maybe. So. And it almost was last time, I think. All right, I'll 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 keep a lid on it. <laughs> we begin with Vicky sitting very smugly behind Michael's desk, and she's hanging out with Tahani's short soulmate and Gunner the Biter. 
And they are like totally self-satisfied about how like, oh, we're killing it. You know, they're totally being tortured. And Michael is very much pretending to go along with like, yeah, wow, you guys are just so great at this. Wow. He tries to give her a huge memo with torture ideas for the humans. And she immediately rejects it by saying she wants a one page max memo with pictures, which is an obvious uh, dig at our current president. The less said about that, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they mention a, that their their plan to torture Tahani is to say it's Gunner's birthday. Side note, what even is a birthday once you're dead? <laughs> Who knows what day or month it is in the afterlife? This makes no sense. But okay, whatever. It's Gunner's birthday, allegedly. He's really a demon. He doesn't have a birthday. And uh, demon is racist. Let's have. But he said he said at the end of that that it was okay. Okay. Um, Gunner is going to have a party thrown for him by like the demons, and they'll also tell Tahani to throw a party, and they'll conflict, and it'll make Tahani sad because the demon thrown party is so much better. So Michael tells Tahani and Jason about this plan once they're back at Eleanor's house. And so Tani and Jason have to go leave and, uh, like, plan this party. And um, in the meantime, Michael joins Chidi and Eleanor for ethics lessons. He says, you know, everything is on the syllabus is stupid garbage. He doesn't want to hear it. You know, he's read everything. He thinks it's nonsense. Eleanor is concerned that Michael is, you know, not going to take this seriously at all. And Chidi sort of has a revelation that like, oh, you know, ethics don't matter if you're immortal. So I have to get him to think about mortality. So he asks Michael, you know, is there a way you could die? And he says, yeah, you know, if I really screw up, I could be retired, which, you know, we all know because we've we heard him talk about it last time. It involves his soul being ladled over hot diamonds. Um, So Chidi says, you know, think about what would happen if you were retired, since it could legitimately happen if Sean found out that you were working with us. And um, yeah, this completely breaks Michael. Uh, Ted Danson's acting here is just like beyond the beyond. Yeah, I have to interject here. I've been quiet for- Yeah, please. I just- (laughs) For a full minute. You've been quiet for a full minute. I'm like Tahani in the first (laughs) season who decides that maybe she shouldn't talk so that she can cleanse her soul and then she is quiet for like seven seconds and she's like, that was so refreshing. Ted Danson's acting in this sequence had me rolling. It was great. It was, he, A plus. Continue. I think he says, so I would be no me. And then <laughs> he just, and then he just, he, he, he grasps his face with his fingertips and kind of makes like an Edvard Munch scream face and, and falls sideways onto Chidi's lap, which was pretty amazing. Eleanor's like, you know, why is he freaking out? You know, like we all learn about death and it's, it's not that big a deal. And then we flash back to when little Eleanor learns about death, which is a really, I, I, I think tonally this flashback for me gave me some problems. Eleanor's mom admits to having killed her dog by leaving him in a hot car. Which That's is like, rough. That, that is rough. a real thing that happens a lot. So like, it probably would have been funnier if it had been some sort of unrealistic death. Oh, okay. 
And of course, her mother is terrible and, you know, doesn't offer little Eleanor any um, comfort. So Tani's doing this party planning. She um, she talks to Janet about uh, how she's, you know, swore to always go overboard. And they and they model this party after a Red Cross fundraiser from 2007 or whatever. So they they all go to Tahani's party. Um, Tahani is wearing this amazing dress. Chidi and Eleanor bring Michael to Tahani's party to try to cheer him up. And Michael says parties are a mere distraction from the relentlessness of entropy, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> so then they say, okay, let's bring Michael over to the other party to try to uh, distract him. The other party is like, you know, Tahani's problem is she's still thinking in earthbound terms. And of course, the demons have no such mental limitations. They have built a real bear workshop. They have hungry, hungry hippos with real hippos. They have a puppy pit. They have, you can ride a unicorn. You can fly like a bird. And so Tahani is miserable, of course. Uh, So Michael is initially, when he's at the party, he is um, sort of, his brain is in like some sort of lockdown mode of just like utter anguish. And Eleanor tells him basically, like, pull together, pretend to smile, and just, like, let's get through this. And that is the that is the cue that Michael needs to immediately shift from sort of the Michael that we have seen for the last season plus, you know, sort of the button-down, um, nerdy kind of Michael, to uh, he becomes a midlife crisis dad, I Michael. love this. I love this you know, so dressed much. Like he's a, <laughs> I know. Dressed like he's out of Miami Vice. He's in like a white sort of suit. He's pulled up in a red sports car. He's got uh, Janet, whom he introduces as Jeanette. And she says, no, I'm, I'm still Janet. It's just Michael asked me to dress like this and tell him that he's funny. And she's like got... She's got, like, dyed blonde hair and, like, a very tight dress. She looks like a real housewife. Yeah, like, to the point... Yeah, to the point where I was like, Darcy Carden, are you okay? Can you breathe in that? She, I mean, she looked banging. Is it okay for me to say that? I, I don't know. So. Okay. She did. And so Eleanor's like, okay, you know, I knew guys like this in Arizona. They were basically harmless. And Chidi's like, well, the problem is that he is now in denial. Instead of confronting, you know, the pitiless universe, he is now just denying it, which doesn't really work for our purposes. You know, as they're having this conversation, Eleanor has another flashback to her father's funeral where her mother, you know, shows up drunk and is terrible uh, and orders Eleanor not to be sad. And she's like, I'm not sad. So we've seen a couple of now we've seen a couple of Eleanor's confrontations with death and how she's not allowed to be sad about it. Um, at the party, Michael makes an, embar- an embarrassing speech and Vicky's a little bit suspicious, but Michael kind of. Puts her mind at ease, says, me torture, s sue torture. Which is <laughs> pretty great. Um, Tani is genuinely miserable. She's not just pretending to be miserable because this puppy pit party is better than her sort of Red Cross, uh, Red Cross funding style party. Eleanor and Chidi take Michael back home. They're trying to get him to sort of cop to his, like, sort of deep existential sadness, which is not really working that great. 
And we see, we get the third flashback of Eleanor sort of dealing with the idea of death. Kind of, sort of. This one's a little more abstract. She she breaks down in a bed, bath, and beyond uh, over a family toothbrush holder where she's sort of crying about the mommy and daddy toothbrushes being able to look after the baby toothbrushes and sort of make sure no harm comes to their little bristles. And then she um, weeps and, yeah, it's really sad. And she weeps into a plunger. So she tells Michael, you know, all humans are aware of death. So we're all a little bit sad all the time. And Michael says, that sounds like a crappy deal. And she says, yeah, it is, but it's the only one we have or the only one we're offered. As a wise Bed Bath & Beyond employee told me, go ahead and cry all you want, but you're going to have to pay for that plunger. Quote of the Uh, episode. Yeah, which Michael takes as great wisdom, which is fortunate for everybody. Back at Tahani's party, Jason is trying to cheer up Tahani by telling her about his 60-person dance crew and how they rated everybody on a scale of 1 to 13, where 8 was the highest on these different categories. You heard Brianna uh, elucidate at the beginning of this episode. Um, And, you know, basically telling her, like, that she is a perfect 8 in all these categories and that, um, you know, be nicer to yourself. And this actually makes Tahani feel better. Uh, the next morning at Eleanor's house, um, they are actually sort of studying a little bit. Although what we mostly see is them reading from Michael's report, his surveillance report, saying that, oh, yes, you know, everything has worked and Tahani's really miserable and Eleanor is still a selfish monster. And Eleanor's like, all right, where are Tahani and Jason anyway? We cut, smash cut to uh, they are in bed together, as we might have guessed. Anytime someone in a sitcom says, where are those two people anyway? <laughs> Pretty much what you can gather from what's what gonna, is what is going to happen. Tahani is surprised that it was as good as it was. Jason looks thrilled to the point of uh, me wondering if he died a virgin. Like, that's a real question that I have. Um, that's which a I guess great question. Sort of, I think, you know, when he talked about how he and Janet were going to try to figure out how to have sex back when they were married... I guess you could have taken that for like Janet is not a human and so it would be some sort of complicating thing for them or I guess now with this information you could take it as like Jason never actually had sex. I took it as the former but yeah it's possible that it was the latter. So Jason is like super psyched and tells her tells Tahani that he's gonna make cereal for them. (laughs) And kind of bounds off to make cereal for the two of them. And Tahani kind of has like a satisfied look on her face. Like, that was not, that was not bad. And uh, even just, can I just say, even she, she's got the sheets pulled up, you know, obviously. In, in true sitcom style, right? She's got the, it's a, sort of the L-shaped sheet. Mm-hmm. She's got the sheet pulled up. Even so, I was like, those are some... Memory glands. She's got some bodacious tattoos. She's, yes. I don't want to, this is a family podcast. I don't want to get into it that much, but like, oh boy. I mean, I just like, dang. I gotta say, all the ladies in this episode looked particularly good tonight. I thought Vicky's dress was great. Yeah, whoever the costume designers are and the hair and makeup people are, they are geniuses. I thought Vicky's dress was great. I thought Tahani's dress was great. I thought um, Eleanor looked really nice. And also uh, Jeanette or Janet. She did look constricted, but 
but very nice in that dress. So where do you want to start the discussion? Oh my goodness. Shall we dive right back into Shipper Wars or talk, do you want to talk about anything else first? I think we should wrap up with Shipper Wars. I think we okay. should start with, I guess, just sort of Michael's existential crisis. Like, I don't know. Does it ring true for you? Does it make sense to you? Does And the way that he sort of exhibited his like symptoms, what that sort of meant. I thought it was... I, I thought it did ring true because I, I think, um, you know, there's a there's a book that you turned me on to, Marissa, that is about, um, you know, wizards and that kind of thing. And Which one? That is so <laughs> not specific enough. Uh, uprooted. Uprooted. Listeners, read Uprooted. It's, it's, a, it's fantastic. But I just reread it recently. And one of the things that is sticking out in my mind is, you know, there's a scene where a really young witch talks to a much 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 older witch like you know hundreds and hundreds of years old who basically tells her that over time your immortality means that you you don't have the same kind of attachment to people that you used to and after hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of years you know grief doesn't really feel like grief and you don't love the people this people the same way that you used to love them and that kind of thing because mortals will come and go in basically a blink of an eye and what's the point of getting upset about it anyway and this young witch kind of gets upset about that because she can't imagine a world in which she wouldn't care about the fate of her parents or her best friend or anything like that but it kind of in a way that's what I was reminded of when Chidi was saying about Michael that, you know, if you're immortal, ethics don't mean anything to you because, you know, your decisions don't really make a difference. Or if you make a wrong decision, then, you know, it's not fatal to you. And, like, you don't have the same attachment to the fate of others as you probably normally would if you felt the sting of mortality every day. Yeah, I guess the irony of this whole episode is that Michael can be destroyed at this point, but the humans can't be. I mean, in some sense, the tables have turned. Mm, that's that a good the point. humans, while they were while the humans were alive, they did have to deal with this constant threat of death, and now they are dead, and they are not going anywhere <laughs> they are yeah. stuck in, a, in in an afterlife for all eternity meanwhile michael is this immortal being who is only sort of um at risk of something resembling death because he got mixed up with this band of humans it's a little strange when you know eleanor and chidi are talking to michael about death because you know the reality of the situation is like yeah, and it happened. And it turned out that it wasn't the end. <laughs> you know? Like yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it, they, they had a fear of death. And it, it, the fear is sort of the fear that's in all of us, I think. And then it turned out that they woke up in another dimension. So... Where they still um, get to learn and grow and... Have, and eat ice cream that tastes like a full cell phone battery. Yeah, and have like a really rich, I don't want to say life, but, you know, experience. 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 Yeah. yeah, that's true. I mean, and also for them, 
the worst thing that could possibly happen has already happened. And for Michael... Well, I mean, the worst thing that could happen, right, would be that they got put into, like, the real bad place. Right. right. But for the, the worst thing from a human's perspective, you know, Eleanor doesn't believe in an afterlife before she dies. Right? So the worst... Oh, is that right? Yeah. She's, you know, she said in one of the episodes... I don't remember that. In one of the episodes, she's talking to somebody and she says, it's not like anybody's keeping score, you know? Oh, yeah. About our about our decisions, right? Good and bad. Um, so the worst thing that could possibly happen, which is dying, which is the thing that we try not to do every day if we can help it, um, <laughs> happen, happen You know who to doesn't them. try? A, a 12-month-old. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Old's trying to die left and right. Oh my gosh! When your when your first son was little, uh, very little, he hoisted himself up, and he stuck his tongue in the flap of a VCR. And I thought to myself, I'm just my whole job on this earth is to make sure that this kid does not just accidentally, oof, yeah, yeah. But, you know, as adults who have sort of the self-awareness, <laughs> we try not to do that. And the worst thing that ha- that could happen to them, the, their worst fear has already happened to them. And so right. you're right. The tables have turned and they are only trying to improve themselves because it's sort of what Cheaty wants to do. And it's what Eleanor wants to do. You know, they could just sort of like, be in their own version of the medium place stuck in you know this sort of purgatory space but they're really trying to better themselves whereas for michael the worst thing that could possibly happen to him has only recently become a threat to him and uh he's only just beginning to think about it and i sort of can't imagine you know awakening at that stage of my development to the idea of non-existence i guess i think that's why he breaks and and sort of another branch of the irony tree is that if you asked i am i am assuming even though we haven't seen the real bad place but i'm assuming that if you asked some of the souls in the real bad place if they would prefer to basically be extinguished or to continue on being tortured, I assume they would choose to be extinguished. Oof, that's real dark, but yeah, you're probably right. I mean, I I think it's a I think it's a pretty easy choice. I mean, do you want eternal torture or do you want what we think of as death, you know, sort of the normal course of death? Although, to be honest, is- retirement does not sound like it's just being extinguished it sounds like he says like his essence is gonna get scooped out with a hot ladle and every single molecule is gonna it does sound like a version of torture until it is over but how how who knows how long it's meant to go on it's not like yeah i don't know to what degree yeah it's like he does say you mean i would be no me so yes he, he is imagining an end of his consciousness yeah yeah, that's true. I mean that, and which is what we think of as death, as humans, the end of our consciousness. You know, whatever there was no the consciousness that did not exist before we were born, then also ceases to exist once we are dead. 
And I think that that, you know, certainly if you gave me the option, the thing that you think is going to happen where your consciousness is snuffed out versus an eternity of butthole spiders, I'm I'm going to take... I'm going to take being snuffed out like a candle. Thanks very much. (laughs) This is like, I think this is a testament to this show that like, it seems like every week now, like we hit a point in the show where we get like real, real and real dark about everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I do think in a way, this episode did get real about people's relationship to mortality and death. And our different experiences with it along the way. Yeah, that flashback with the dead dog. I get what they were going for, but it was too long and it was too specific. And that was really rough. I did, I did not appreciate it. Like, I get it. I get what they were going for. I think yeah. they just... There's a line and I think they just went a little too far. Yeah on the wrong side of the line to like, nope, this is too realistic. This is this is too much. This is a real thing that really happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think she's supposed to be cartoonish in her disregard for Yeah, you know, her her sociopathic le- lack of empathy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it does I mean that really Man, that was rough. And and it does give you an insight into why Eleanor sort of is the way she is. And it was supposed to be cartoonish. And I think it, it left a little bit too real of a mark, which maybe isn't necessarily yeah. a bad thing. But it's just I don't want to think about a dog dying in the back of a car. No, I mean, couldn't they have made it so that the dog like wandered into a nuclear power plant? And You know what I mean? Like just. Something or she got the dog drunk like or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. Just yeah. something that is like like what happened in an episode of The Simpsons or something. Right. Or not including the death. But like yeah. right, if you're trying to do cartoonishly sociopathic evil, like you can't go with the, the hot car death. It's just too much. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. But I and also, you know, we got to see a version of Eleanor at her father's funeral, which was also upsetting, where she almost sort of looked like she had, you know, a functional relationship and, uh, you know, from what we saw of it. Was that the same guy who wanted to boycott the coffee place that was run by the sexual I, harasser? I think so. I think so. Okay. Um, but it sort of looked like she had a, at least some of a functional relationship and she was trying to deal with her grief but but keep it together and then her cartoonishly evil mom shows up and just sort of she's like the mom from matilda oh wow that's yeah a deep, that's a deep cut <laughs> i know but it's it's like the mom from matilda crossed with amy poehler from mean girls yes oh my god <laughs> i'm a cool mom uh, <laughs> you're so right and also like a little bit of lucille bluth most you know the drink i love lucille bluth that's i do too i do too it it did i i think one of the most like poignant moments for me too was like when chidi you know when eleanor is trying to say like oh why is he you know basically like why is michael being such a baby about this like death's not that big of a deal like we all deal with it it's not that you know i'm fine i've dealt with it and i'm fine and chidi says to her like are you really and i just thought you know, I know we're going to get into Shipper Wars, 
for a different reason, but I did think that that was, you know, he knows her well enough at this point to know all, even though they've only known each other in this timeline for like two weeks. Yeah. Two weeks. And he's already sort of disarming her and she is in return already giving him because the, the conceit is that we see it as a flashback she's actually telling him this story, right? So she's telling him about the time in her life that she was she? most... Vo- yeah, because How do he... You... Because I didn't he, get that. Oh, he, you know, she kind of gives him a look afterwards, and I sort of thought it was um, that she had told him that. And, you know, because otherwise, I guess she could have just been thinking about it. But I always just felt like, you know, she had opened herself up to him and, and told him about this, like, very vulnerable moment in her life, arguably, like, the one time when this sort of tough girl veneer cracks open. And I thought that was a really nice moment. It did feel like if Eleanor had lived and maybe stayed with that boyfriend who seemed to be pretty good for her and maybe had, like, five years of intensive therapy, like, she could have gotten to a place where she was kind of okay. Yeah, but I think that goes back to our point of, like, has she irrevocably changed because of this experience? Because I don't think that the Eleanor who was the Arizona dirtbag, as she called herself, like, I don't think that Arizona dirtbag Eleanor would have ever admitted to any of that or would have ever gotten close enough to somebody to, like, go through that kind of a sea change. You know, it it took her dying to realize that she needed to change her life. That's very poetic. Thank you. I just thought of it. (laughs) Off the top of the old (laughs) noggin. I don't know. Did you? How did you? What is Michael's? What is Michael's weird thing that he says at the beginning of this episode that really tucks my nuggets or something? Tugs, tugs, tugs. Really tugs my nuggets. That's his way of saying that he's annoyed by Vicky. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, what were you gonna ask? Oh, I was gonna ask. You know, you started out asking me um, what I thought, whether or not I thought Michael's uh, his whole way of dealing with all of this was seemed on par. And uh, I talked for like 20 minutes. And so I, <laughs> I asked you a question. Yeah. Um, I, uh, again, I didn't like the pacing. Yeah. I, I thought that his like midlife crisis was like way too short. Um, you know, and it was basically, so it was hilarious, you know, that he was having all these sort of very human midlife crisis attributes. Like I, he said, you know, he gets a, tattoo <laughs> that means japan in chinese you I know he has that. ear pierced he's got the sports car but like I, you know not to be the killjoy here but like logically that doesn't make any sense why would a demon have human midlife crisis symptoms it, it doesn't track at all it doesn't. <laughs> why would he I'm so, I'm sorry. It was it was hilarious. We're it was supposed like a really to understand funny... it. That's why if he showed up with like a you know, it's supposed to read to a st- to an audience that's a human used audience, to a, a human yeah. audience that's used to a stereotypical midlife crisis, like Eleanor is. Right? She said there's a ton of those guys in Arizona. You know, if he had showed up with like I don't know a lava monster and like right. then. I don't know that it would have read the same way, but I, I get where you're coming from. 
Yeah, I like, and I don't want to like, I don't want to rag on what is essentially an extended joke, but I think if you pick away at it, you'll find that there's kind of a void underneath the veneer. <laughs> but whatever. Um, and yeah, I, I wasn't crazy about the pacing. I, I just thought like, you know, that anguish, that ennui was like so well acted. It was so real. And then his like snap change to his like midlife crisis and then his snap changed back to his ennui. It just didn't really work for me. I, I, I kind of, I was left wishing that either it had gone on longer or it had been a little more nuanced or something. It, it But I think, again, this is like, it was a victim of the format. You know, NBC comes to them and says, I know I'm making these numbers up, right? But like, okay, it's four minutes, then a commercial break, then nine minutes, then a commercial break, and then four minutes. and then, You know, like, yeah. so... They have to slot into this incredibly restrictive act structure, and um, that's really hard. And I just think that they whiffed it a little bit with this um, existential crisis of Michael's. Mm. Like, that the the beats were a little off. That the ideas were there, but the beats were a little bit off for me. Yeah, that's fair. And I do think he yeah. he comes around very quickly like the next day to to saying to Eleanor like I'm thankful that you pulled me out of that like I I I see what Yeah, you're you know what it reminded where... me of so what's that? Back when when I in the in the gap year between graduating college and and getting the job that I eventually kept um I I did some odd jobs, I did some temp jobs, I babysat, etc. Um but I also spent a lot of time on our parents' couch. And every day from, I think it was three to five or four to six, I would watch two episodes of Star Trek Voyager in a row, um, <laughs> which I retain a really soft spot in my heart for. But um, my best friend from childhood lived you know, a couple blocks away and she was also looking for a job. And so she, once in a while she would come over to our house and she would watch Voyager with me. And she only did it a few times. And at some point she said to me, you know, you know, I'm popping the popcorn and we settle in and she goes, let me guess. Um, something really drastic is going to happen. And then somehow five minutes before the hour, uh, everything is going to get back to the exactly the way it was at the beginning of the episode. And I was like, shh, eat your popcorn. But like, it was that, right? Yeah. I mean, this episode was that very classic sitcom. Like, well, we've got like, um, we've got like a stable, we've got a point of stability and we're going to rock the boat for the length of the episode. And then by the end of the episode, we're back to that same point of stability, which uh, this show had not really done a whole heck of a lot of that kind of classic structure. Um, usually there was something that, you know, some sort of cliffhanger or a, a point of contention that was unresolved. I guess you could argue that Tahani Jason thing kind of was that, but I really think that obviously Michael's thing was the A plot. And yeah. we have not seen the show do a lot of that sort of uh, the mountain graph on the A plot where you start at a point, you go up, you come back down and you're back at that same point. So that was uh, strange. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective, but narratively, I agree with you. And it didn't... Yeah, there, there was nothing... Uh, we still have the same kind of relationship 
with Eleanor and uh, Michael at the beginning of the episode and the end of the episode, which historically, as you said, hasn't really happened in this show. So, you know, maybe we should brace ourselves for a few more episodes like that, potentially. I also thought they could have done more with Vicky's sort of suspicion about Michael, unless we're going to see that in an upcoming episode. Because he gets up and he makes this big speech at the animal party about, basically, he's just spewing nonsense about Dracor... Spewing nonsense... Dracar Noir. About Dracar Noir. Excuse me. He's like, I'm wearing a lot of it right now. And sports cars and all these other sort of, like, very stereotypical midlife crisis for humans things. And Vicky says to him, like, what are you doing? You didn't run any of that by me. And he sort of... He assures her that everything's okay. And she kind of goes, okay... Um, and then later on in the episode, you hear Eleanor say to Chidi, like, I think uh, Vicky bought Michael's excuse, but, right. you know, you got to snap him out of it. I wish that they would have done more with Vicky's suspicion because I still have a lot of open questions about where Vicky falls in all of this and how she feels about Michael and how she feels about, you know, the humans and her own role. So I think they... Maybe we're going to see it in the next episode, but I think they missed an opportunity to just linger on her a little bit more uh, so that we can kind of right. get where she's, what she's thinking. I mean, if this season is entirely consumed by this one iteration of the good, bad place, and it's all being run by Vicky, you, I guess you could assume that the season closer has to be something regarding Vicky finding out or, you know, somebody finding out and putting a stop to it or what have you. So, right, you can't have Vicky at this point being like, they know. But you can, as you say, yeah, right, the camera work can imply that Vicky has a little voice in the back of her head saying, this isn't quite right. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Now that we've gotten the serious stuff out of the way, I think it's time for Shipper Wars. Shipper Wars. I am glad that we are coming back to this because I was listening to <laughs> the last episode where we talked about Shipper Wars and you said that you didn't, you couldn't think of a couple that I had shipped on my own as an adult person and I came up with two and I just want to just lay them out there. We don't have to discuss them, but I just wanted to put them out there because I am like 90 8% on the side of everyone should be bros all the time. That's where I mostly <laughs> am. And that extra 2% is for Jim and Pam on The Office and Sean and Juliet sure. from Psych, which is my favorite show of all time. So on the USA Network, characters welcome. <laughs> So if anybody wants to talk about those two pairings and the fan fiction, I may or may not have How have you not Okay. How have you not started a psych fan podcast, by the way? Like a a psych rewatch podcast? Do not think I have not thought about doing that. But who would do it with you is the real question, right? I have a very good friend here. Shouts to my friend Elizabeth, who is super into psych as much as I am. And, you know, there's a movie coming up. They're doing Psych the Movie, so we might have to do a rewatch. And, you know, maybe we turn this into a podcast empire, and I have a podcast uh, about uh, Psych on the side where I can talk about 
the fan fiction I may or may not have written about them many years ago. So, that's an aside. How many years ago? Many, many, many years ago. Okay. I was in I was in college. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> I, Moving on. <laughs> well, I was just gonna say I I live in a glass house and cannot cast stone, so I'm just gonna <laughs> bite my tongue on that one. What's your feeling about uh, Tahani and uh, Jason? I don't know. I, I it's like yeah. um, it does seem like Tahani desperately needs some kind of human contact, right? I mean, she is she yikes i mean she (laughs) no i feel bad for her i honestly do like ever since michael kind of tore her down in the last episode you know she's in a bad place she's realizing like sort of how petty her life was and and by the way i don't blame her for how petty she was in life because she had a terrible family oh god Um, her sister was a nightmare and her parents were too (laughs) yeah they all were so she's she's realized how petty she was in life and how sort of small her soul was in a sense. Mm. And now she's in this universe where, you know, she had a very, if anything she ever says is to be believed, she had a very active social life while she was alive. And now she is trapped in this universe where there's only three other human beings she can ever talk to, at least for the time being. Which has to feel incredibly limiting to her. I think it feels um, not so limiting to, say, Eleanor, because Eleanor never really had meant much in the way of like friends or confidants. Um, so for Eleanor to only have three people that she can really interact with, I don't think feels so bad. I think for Tahani, it must feel pretty awful, because she was such a social butterfly. So, I mean... Tahani desperately needs human contact and her options are Eleanor who in this iteration at least like openly hates her. Um, (laughs) And we've talked about their, you know, their personalities are really oil and water. There's Chidi who is a wonderful guy. Um, I suppose she could talk with him, but he's kind of busy trying to, you know, wrangle all these people into ethics lessons. And then there's Jason. And then there's Maude. And then and then there's Jason. You know? I mean, he's he's kind of just the only person who is easygoing enough that she can have any sort of and I don't mean like romantic relationship, but any kind of like real relationship with him. You know, I think that Chidi would bulk pretty quickly at some of Tahani's um shallowness. But Jason doesn't care. I mean, Jason is just so beyond Jason's ken, you know, that that Tahani is being snooty or um, belittling. I mean, he just doesn't get those nuances. Yeah. Um, and he's such a he's such a more simple person that she kind of doesn't try for that social one-upsmanship with him. Yeah, I mean, there's no point with him because. He thinks his favorite meal, for example, like was wings from a like a gas station, right? Like oh, yeah, I was gonna say jalapeno poppers, but yeah, yeah same thing. Was, yeah, no, like, no, 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 no. Excuse you. It was not the wings place that was above the the. Wait a minute. It was not the wings place that was above the gas station, right? It was the no. Wait, it was the nice it, one above the gas station. <laughs> <laughs> it. No, it was the nice one, not the one above the gas station. You are correct. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So for him, yeah, he just, all of that kind of, as you said, social one-upsmanship and the passive aggression that I think she's so used to in her own family. Like he just doesn't even engage in any of that. It would never occur to him to engage in any of that. And I actually thought he was really sweet to her. I mean, like he's kind of a (laughs) dum-dum. Like, I think we've established at this point that we think he's a dum-dum. But I like the fact that he was saying to her, like, you're awesome. You should be nicer to yourself. And I think, I mean, I think every woman deserves someone who will say that to her. Um, Mm. You know? Yeah, it really is. Jason is offering her simple kindness and she reacts to it you know like a plant that has never seen the sun you know it's that is a great way to put it that's a great way to put it because he's the he's the first one to just be like wow you did all this this is great right she has never right she he's like you're great at doing this and you're really cool and i've never seen you dance but i bet you dance pretty well right like he's just sort of yeah he's he's giving her like Real compliments that are simple, but also that are sort of genuinely felt. You know, he's not, he really is impressed by what she's done. And he's not, he doesn't have an ulterior motive. And you can tell that he's not trying to get her into bed the way that uh, Demon Adam Scott, the way that Demon Adam Scott in the first season is trying to get Eleanor, right? Saying to her, like, well, you know, you're not going to do any better than me and you're a trash bag and all that stuff, right? Like nagging her. Um, Basically the opposite, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's so he has no ulterior motive. He's very simple, as you said. Yeah, he's I want to I want to be really I want to be really clear about the fact that he is not telling her that she's a perfect eight because he wants to get her into bed. That would be sleazy yeah. and gross. Yeah, he's, he's, he's just really trying not. he's just trying to cheer her up. He's genuinely trying to cheer her up. And I don't think she's ever in her life encountered somebody who gave her a genuine compliment or was genuinely impressed with something that she did without there being some other meaning behind it. I think he's incredibly direct in the way that he communicates and she responded to that. And you can tell that he wasn't trying to get her into the bed, into bed with him because the next morning he's got this look on his face like, oh my God. What like, just happened? What yeah. just happened? That was amazing and totally unexpected, and I love it. And I love that he says, "Like, do you want do you want me to make you breakfast? I can make cereal." But even that, <laughs> right? Like, think about the relationships that Tahani has had in her life, and we don't know anything about her romantic relationships on Earth. No, we don't know anything about them. But if they're anything like the rest of her relationships, you know. Even somebody pouring you cereal the next morning probably seems like a, a really big deal. Yes. Now, I don't think this can necessarily be the basis for a partnership that goes on for millennia. <laughs> no. <laughs> Doesn't really seem like a deep-seated thing. But it does seem like for now, it makes Tahani happy. It certainly makes Jason happy. Yeah. And Janet doesn't remember that she and Jason used to be married. Well, or so, does she? It's not hurting it. Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I did have a moment where I wondered if we were going to get a Jason 
Janet Tahani love triangle, which would be hysterical because of all of the people on that show to have a love triangle. <laughs> the Ugh. weirdest combination possible. But yeah, I mean, I, I think to your point, Marissa, thinking about, you know, what might happen after the for now this is good and it makes me happy kind of thing fades, right? You know, what do you do at that point? I mean, who knows? And we've also got, you know, the Chidi and Eleanor relationship to contend with in that, you know, she has seen and she has video evidence that they not only have been sleeping together, but that they have confessed their love for each other. And again, as I said before, like in this episode, they do have some not physically intimate, but emotionally intimate moments. Um, right. And how long are, is that going to sort of, how long is she going to be able to kind of live in this version of the bad place with that knowledge? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that the Eleanor Tahani shippers are going to have to cool their heels for at least another season. <laughs> they're out there and they're mad. They're I'm in sure the they AV are. club comment section and they're mad. <laughs> oh, that should be the name of like one of our, you know, ep- episode blocks that we do is just they're in the AV co- club comment section and they're mad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why don't you take us into spoiler space? Yeah, speaking of the AV Club, uh, actually, this is from Vulture, uh, this this first... Uh... <laughs> speaking of segue, no, just kidding. JK, <laughs> before we get into spoiler space, well, I think we can do this simultaneously. There's a great uh, interview with Michael Schur, the creator of The Good Place in Vulture, called The Good Place creator Michael Schur on season two food puns and why you shouldn't expect another finale twist, which is why this is in spoiler space. But before we get there, uh, this article had a little bit of Megan Amram appreciation. And I just feel like we need a Megan Amram appreciation re-up from our episode a couple weeks ago. Here, here. So the, basically the question is how do you come up with all the puns? And do you have like a master Google doc? And Michael Schur says, the master Google document is called Megan Amram's brain. If Megan doesn't make a pun every 37 minutes, her brain will overheat and her head will explode and she'll die. That's the only possible explanation for how many puns Megan makes out loud and on Twitter every day. And then he was talking about the restaurant scene that we went in depth on with all of our favorite puns a couple weeks back. And he said, this is not an exaggeration. In that section of the script, she included a giant paragraph full of puns. Uh, it went on for six or seven pages. She's certainly the Willie Mays. Oh my god! <laughs> so she didn't even—I mean, six or seven oh pages god. of uh, you know. And then the set designers had to okay a little bit chowder now. <laughs> I don't even want to think about. Yeah, we're. <laughs> I don't even want to think about. So props to you, Megan Amram. I think we're gonna make this a recurring segment if for the next time you write an episode, we'll be on it. Hail to the Amram, uh, yes. Indeed. Uh, but for spoiler space, I wanted to talk about the same article because it did have a little Am- bit... Amramica the beautiful. Okay, I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm not a, a punster. Uh, I try to be, but it's, I'm not as good as she is. 
this article has um, a couple things that I thought were a tad spoilery, um, just in the sense of like what we can expect maybe from the way the season is structured, because Michael sure talks about how um, if for season one, he knew the twists, uh, like it's not like he started writing and then he thought, oh, you know, it'd be cool if they were actually in the bad place. He knew the twist and he pretty much had the season plotted out uh, before he wrote the pilot. Um, and this is actually something, uh, side note, this is actually something he said he started to do uh, during uh, when he was show running Parks and Rec and it worked really well. So I think that's probably why he's continued it. So he knows, he knew uh, the way that the season one was going to go. And the interviewer kind of asked him, um, you know, how does that affect season two? And he said that, um, you know, when he was thinking about the twist for the end of the first season, he said, all right, I have at least two years in me. So that's a thing for us to remember as we do this show. And as we, we think about the good place that, you know, they don't know if they're going to get renewed uh, yet. For season three. I can't imagine they wouldn't knock on wood, but that's something that he went into it thinking, all right, I can at least get two years out of this show. So there might be some more finality at the end of this finale for season two. Uh, if, you know, if that's to be believed and, but then he was asked if he had uh, a general arc in mind for season three. And he says they do because they sort of, go through their different ideas and some of them would work for where the cast is now and the characters are now, but some of them are a little too far flung. So they basically put it on a separate board for season three. And, but he says, it's not going to be the same kind of twist. It's not going to be, we don't do a thing at the end where it's like, guess what? Hell is really heaven. So we're not going to get that. Um, so it's not a double switch back reversal or anything like that. Um, but there are things that happen over the course of the second season that would suggest what happens in season three. So that's very cryptic. I don't know exactly what he's talking about, but, uh, you know, Oh, wait, 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 wait. I just got Darcy Carden's cryptic hint from a couple weeks ago when she said one pierced ear, she was talking about Michael's midlife crisis. (laughs) Oh my God. She was. She was Michael. Wow. That's not a very, that's not a very far ahead hint. I mean, that was basically, they gave that interview, you know, a week or a week and a half before, you know, this episode that we're talking about. So she was not projecting very far into the future. Um, And then the other thing from this uh, that I wanted to kind of point out was we had been talking about Vicky and her role in all of this. And, um, the interviewer says, I imagine we'll see more of Vicky, but are the other characters, like if you remember, we were talking about Angelique and Pavita, uh, and we've been talking about Gunner, and we've been talking about um, Tomas, who is who is uh, Tahani's... His name's not really Tomas, but who cares? Right. Um, the, the short soulmate from, you know, the beginning of the season for Tahani. And Michael says... Something happens at the end of the fourth episode that throws the point of view back into the world of Eleanor and her three human friends. For that reason, there's less time to be spent with the other, call them what you will, demons, I guess, in the in episodes five and beyond. So I think this one that we just watched, he considers episode five because the first week was two episodes put together. I think what he means is Michael and the humans teaming up. Yeah, that's probably true. 
So, but it does give you a little bit of insight into like maybe we're not going to get a lot of the ancillary characters that we thought were going to be pivotal to the series. Yeah, I put a lot of stock in, you know, Chidi's fake soulmates that very first episode, but that whole thing turned out to be a dead end. Yeah. So, and I mean, they're, they're, that's kind of a shame because I think there could have been some nice uh, plays with that. And who's to say that we wouldn't see something else later on that's equally as interesting. But I do think that, you know, we've got our sitcom cast at this point. You know, it's not going to be a ton of people coming in. It's going to be mostly focused on the four humans, Michael and, and Vicky as like a you know, an add-on every now and again. It, it sounds like anyway. No, I think Michael is a main character, but yeah, Vicky is kind of, yeah. you know, the the secondary kind of character. And she's got these like tertiary underlings by yeah. her side. And the last piece of spoiler space is not from an article. It's just from uh, something that I noticed. The next week's episode is called The Trolley Problem. (laughs) And I'm wondering, could that be a nod to the, quote, mode of transportation that Michael talks about to get to the real good place? (laughs) Ha! What if the way to get to the real good place is you have to sit on a trolley and be confronted with trolley problem after trolley problem and ethically correctly answer each one before you are allowed in? (laughs) Forget it. I would not do well. I, would I know, you're well. just riding around on the trolley and there's one person on this line and five people on the other line and the one person's like a baby, but you still have to squish the baby because utilitarianism. <laughs> I guess if heaven is utilitarian, whatever. Yeah, I mean, if I... I... Kimmy, Schmidt had an amazing, Kimmy Schmidt had an amazing take on utilitarianism and the trolley problem where Kimmy is trying out to be a crossing guard. She basically, her solution to the trolley problem is sacrificing herself. uh, And it is pretty great. I mean, it's all fake, so she's fine. But um, it's it's such a Kimmy Schmidt thing. Yeah, I mean, could it be that we get some sort of ethical quandary that eventually leads to the mode of transportation? Because uh, Kristen Bell did say in her cryptic clue to us that transportation is... A main character now. Could this be a a literal trolley problem? (laughs) I think we should wrap it up. I agree. Until next time, don't get any ill-advised tattoos. We'll see you later, ding-dongs.